So often people say to me, what can we do? What resources are available to help us in this wicked day? And someone's always coming down the road with some new program that the church is supposed to implement. I'll tell you what we can do. Number one, we can learn God's word and that is absent in the pulpits of America, expository preaching. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We have begun a character study of the prophet Elijah. Our text is from 1 Kings, and yesterday we began in chapter 17, where Elijah first appears on the scene. We've already seen the faith of Elijah through his obedient response to God's calling. As we pick up, Dr. Brogy notes that part of Elijah's faith came from being convinced of God's power. Elijah is displaying strength and Elijah is taking action. He's there in the presence of King Ahab, not in his own strength, but he is there in the strength of God. Notice as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, and I hope at home you have a Bible in your lap and you're looking at it, because you'll get so much more out of any sermon I preach if you have God's word in your hands. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand. Do you see what he's saying? Elijah is saying, I'm not just standing here before you, Ahab. I am standing in this place before the God who lives. By the way, how do you convince an unbelieving world that God is alive? You convince an unbelieving world that God is alive by the aliveness and the power that is in your life. The most convincing thing of true biblical Christianity is its power to change a life. The world is not overwhelmed and convinced by your argumentation and by all of your apologetics. The world is not overwhelmed by your success story. That's what we want to do. We want to parade across platforms all of these great success stories in evangelicalism. The world is convinced only by that which it cannot produce, and that is a changed life. Freedom from the guilt of sin. Freedom from the slavery of sin. That's what will grab an unbelieving world's attention. When Christ-likeness is portrayed in your home, when godly children who display the fruit of the Spirit begin to exhibit a different kind of life than their peers. Do you remember shortly after Pentecost, the Jewish leaders, the elders and the scribes saw the apostles and they made this statement in Acts 4. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Only God can do that. And that's why Bible-based Christianity, because there's a whole lot of fake Christianity out there today that has very little to do with what we read in the Bible. But Bible-based Christianity will revolutionize a person's life. And that's what God uses, among other things, to get people's a question. Let me ask you a question as I asked myself this week. What is there in your life that can only be explained by the supernatural work of God? What is there in your life that is proof positive that you have a living, life-changing relationship with God through Christ? Elijah, Elijah this prophet, he, he is just filled with reality. 
He is so different from so many people in the day in which he walked. He sees himself as God's representative. He sees himself as God's ambassador. He sees himself as representing the all-powerful God who puts kings in place and who takes them down. And he's not afraid to walk into the presence of this king. And that's what we need today. We have too many Christians who are stuttering who are paralyzed, it seems, in the midst of a wicked world, and they're just folding their hands, and they're in hiding in their little Bible studies. But they're doing very little in a forward way to change the world for the glory of God. Elijah could have thrown up his hands and said, idolatry is everywhere. What can I do? I'm just one man. That's what God needs. One man, one woman, one boy, one girl who is available, who will believe God, that God is able to do precisely all that he has promised. And how does he do it? Through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God, the dunamis, we get our word dynamite. It is the power of God to change people. And certainly it should be seen in the pulpit. Certainly it should be seen by those who are in full-time ministry of one sort or another. But it needs to be seen in your squadron. It needs to be seen in, in your boardrooms. It needs to be seen in the shop, on the university campus, in your home, or wherever you find yourself. Unbelievers need to see the work of the living God through the people of God. So here is Elijah. He's a man with courage. One, because he was convinced of God's power, that God could change things. But secondly, there on your outline, he was convinced of God's provision. He's convinced of God's provision. Look again in verse one. He says to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, many times a prophet of God would go into the presence of a king or to the people at large and simply deliver a message, some prediction that God gave them concerning their future. Uh, God would often make a prophet a direct conduit of new revelation, uh, something that had not been revealed in the past, and he would go and speak. We call that foretelling. Other times, a prophet would not simply foretell, but he would take revelation that God had already given, and he would foretell it. He would not preach some new revelation. He would simply preach that which God had already revealed. And you see both aspects in the life and ministry of the prophets. And really, this idea of foretelling is what a pastor is to do. I cannot preach new revelation, as some claim they can, but as God's representative, I am to preach what God has already given. God has done writing the Scripture. The canon of Scripture is closed. He is not giving new revelation, as many are claiming today. My job is to foretell. Now, I might tell of the future, but only in reference to what God has already said about what is going to happen in the future. So let me ask a question. If I say Jesus Christ is going to come back for sure by 2025, am I foretelling or uh, am I foretelling? Well, I would be allegedly foretelling. 
but that's not something I can truthfully do because again, the last chapter, the last paragraph of the scripture in the Revelation, not to mention Moses and Solomon, warn us that we cannot add to what God has given. The canon of scripture is closed. Not to mention that such a prediction would contradict what Jesus himself said, but of that day, no one knows. But if I were to say a day is coming when Jesus who physically, literally was ascended into heaven, who is at the right hand of the Father this morning, is literally physically going to come back to judge the living and the dead, would I be foretelling or would I be foretelling? I would be foretelling. I would be telling the future based on what God has already revealed in Scripture. So important question. What is Elijah doing? Is Elijah foretelling or is Elijah foretelling? Well, look at again at 1 Kings 17 and verse 1. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. I want you to see that he was not primarily foretelling as he was foretelling a promise that God had already revealed. You might want to put two scriptures out in the margin next to verse 1 there in your Bible. One would be James 5, 17 and 18. James 5, 17 and 18. And the other would be from Moses, and it would be Deuteronomy eleven sixteen. Deuteronomy eleven sixteen. Now hold your finger here in 1 Kings and fast forward to the back of the Bible and go to the book of James. Go to the book of James. Go to James chapter 5 for a moment. Now James 5.17 gives us some information through the inspirational work of the Holy Spirit that you don't find anywhere in the Old Testament. Actually, it's first given by Jesus in Luke 4.25, where Jesus revealed that for three and a half years, it did not rain. That's not something you find in the Old Testament. That's divine commentary given to us in the New Testament. And so James, the half-brother of the Lord, says this in James 5.17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Sometimes we read of these prophets and we think, well, they lived in a different world. They breathed different air than we do. But he reminds us, no, he had a nature just like ours. He's reminding us that he was a man. He was not some superman, that Elijah was a regular person like you and me. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Ladies and gentlemen, the fact that this man could courageously, boldly confront this king was a result, among other things, that he prayed. He was able, with boldness and courage, to stand before this wicked king. Why? Because he had already had an audience with the king of kings. He was a man who knew how to stand before men because he knew how to kneel before God. He prayed earnestly. And James, of course, prefaces this illustration by reminding us that every believer can see answer to prayer because he says the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. James wants us to know that what God did for Elijah in answer to prayer, God can do for us. James knows that we might be tempted to ask, where is the God of Elijah? When we really need to be asking, where are the Elijahs of God? The same God who answered Elijah's prayer can answer your prayer. Now, follow closely. 
You see, unlike an announcement of impending judgment that Jonah gave, remember Jonah said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Did Jonah have to pray that to happen? No, God was going to do it. There are some things God's going to do, whether you pray about it or not. Someday my body is going to be resurrected. It has nothing to do with, Lord, please resurrect my body. Some, he's going to resurrect everyone. Some to walk on streets of gold. Some to live in a place of eternal judgment. That's going to happen. So the prediction, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He didn't have to pray that judgment down. God said he was going to do it if they did not repent. But Elijah prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain, the scripture says, for three years and six months. Again, a time frame you don't learn in the Old Testament. God reveals it to us here and through Jesus. So where on earth did Elijah get the idea to pray for no rain? Now go to that other book in the Bible, Deuteronomy. Go back to the book of Genesis, and you'll come to the fifth book of the Bible, the book of Deuteronomy. Our English Bibles use the names for the first five books from the Septuagint. The Septuagint, abbreviated in the NASB LXX, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Most Jews had to read the Old Testament in Greek because they lost at some point in their history the ability to read Hebrew. And so we follow the Septuagint, Deuteros to Namas law. So this is the second law. And the title emphasizes the second set of the Ten Commandments and the expansion of the law that Moses gives from Mount Sinai. In fact, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, it's always good to have the big picture of any book. You know, Genesis, four events, four people. Creation, fall, flood, nations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. That's Genesis. Well, Deuteronomy is built around three specific sermons or speeches that Moses gives there on the plains of Moab just before God takes him home. The first sermon is historical. It's covered in chapters 1 through the middle of chapter 4, and the focus is on what God has done. The second sermon he gives is legal. It deals with what God expects, and it begins in the middle of chapter 4 and goes all the way through chapter 26. The third sermon he gives begins in chapter 27 through the end of the book, and it's prophetical, what God will do. So three sermons, what God has done, what God expects, what God will do. Now here in chapter 11, you're in the second sermon what God expects, Deuteronomy chapter 11. And we find two answers to answer our question as to why Elijah prayed the way he did. Look at Deuteronomy 11 and pick it up in verse 11. But the land and to which you are about to cross to possess it, a land of hills and valleys, drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the year. It shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, that he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. Then notice verse 15. He will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. But then Moses warns, beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them, or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you 
And he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. Elijah knew what God promised and that God is able to perform exactly what he said, and he knew that since the nation in his day had defected spiritually, that God had reason to withhold the rain. And so Elijah knew the covenant God had made with the people, and he will expand in 28 and 29 of Deuteronomy some of the consequences of breaking that covenant. God had warned through Moses that if Israel worshiped other gods that Yahweh, among other things, as the text says here, would shut up the heavens so that there would be no rain and the ground would not yield its fruit. Now, Baal was the fertility god. He was the storm god. The pagans believed that he was the one who sent the rain to fructify the earth. And so if Baal cannot produce rain in his area of expertise, in his area of specialty, then his reputation is going to be shattered. It's going to shrivel into the cracks of the field as they get larger and larger and longer and longer. So in asking God to stop the rain, Elijah, in essence, is declaring to Ahab that God is going to shut off Baal's faucet that God is going to do precisely what he promised. And so claiming the promises of God, he earnestly, fervently, and effectively believes that God is able to do that which he has promised. And he's really claiming what God has said in Deuteronomy chapter 11. He didn't just dream this up, that God would turn the faucet off. He had a promise. Now listen to your pastor. If you are going to be a person that God can use, a teenager, a man, or a woman, who has great courage, then among other things, you must know the Word of God. If Elijah didn't know Deuteronomy 11, he couldn't have prayed so fervently. The Bible reveals God's plans, and it gives us God's promises, and we need to know those. But if you don't know God's Word, you can't plead the promises of God. And if you do know God's word, but you don't pray, then it just makes you arrogant and proud and lifted up. So often people say to me, what can we do? What resources are available to help us in this wicked day? And someone's always coming down the road with some new program that the church is supposed to implement. I'll tell you what we can do. Number one, we can learn God's word, and that is absent in the pulpits of America, expository preaching. We have traded it for all the fluff and stuff that so many pastors are giving to entertain people on Sunday mornings. And number two, we can pray. And you can pray with power when you know what the scripture says. That's the courage of Elijah. He was courageous because one, he was convinced of God's power, and number two, he was courageous because he was convinced of God's promises made available through, his, uh, through prayer. But there's something else I want us to learn about how this man could live in difficult times. Roman numeral two there on your outline. I want us to think this morning about the concealment of Elijah. Beginning now in verse two, Elijah moves from the realm of the public into the realm of the private. I want now us to look at verses two and three. We're told the word of the Lord came to him saying, go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. Hide myself, 
God, you've called me to preach. I'm your prophet. No, God says, hide yourself. In the Hebrew word, uh, shafah has the idea of concealment. God wants his prophet to conceal or to hide himself, and for three reasons. First, his concealment was the mark of God's protection. God's concealment was the mark of his protection. God was concerned for the physical safety of this man of God. If you look over, turn over a page to chapter 18 and look at verse 10, Obadiah, not the one that bears the book by his name, but there's this man, Obadiah, we're going to study him. And he says in 1 Kings 18 and verse 10, as the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master, referring to King Ahab, has not sent to search for you. That is the prophet Elijah. And when they said he is not here, he made the kingdom or nation swear that they could not find you. So when Elijah first told King Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be no rain nor dew these three years except by my word. Ahab probably thought, oh, the heavens, they're not gonna dry up. Oh, finally, the rain stops. He probably thought, this is a short drought. We can deal with it for a few months. But this drought goes on and on and on and on for three and a half years. Farms would fail, livestock would die, famine and disease would come. And when it happened, King Ahab wants Elijah bad. And so he went looking for him. Why? Because Elijah said, it would not rain but by my word. And I'm sure he wanted to track him down to try to force him to change his word. Not to mention, according to chapter 18 and verse 4, Jezebel, the wicked wife of Ahab, wants to kill the prophet since she's already butchered many. And so God puts his prophet into his protective care. And by the way, God's protective care has not changed one bit. Put out in the margin, Isaiah 49, 14 through 16. Isaiah 49, 14 through 16. In that passage, Isaiah the prophet recounts uh, the experience of the children of Israel. They had thought that God had forsaken them, and, and so God answers. But Zion said, Israel said, the people said, the Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. But listen to God's answer. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. And then God says this in verse 16. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands, your walls. Walls were built around a city for protection. And so God records through Isaiah, your walls are continually before me. Now, I suppose there's no part of your body that's so well known as the palms of your hands. You may look at them, maybe they're dirty and they need to be washed. You may look at them and there's some calluses on them from hard work. God says he has inscribed you on the palms of his hands. He never loses track of you. Jesus said, I will never forsake you. I will be with you unto the end of the age. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And so God's instruction to Elijah 
is that I'm going to protect you. This was part of his witness protection program for his prophet. He puts him in a very, very safe place. But that's only part of the reason he has Elijah hide himself. I also want you to notice, point B on your outline, his concealment was the method of God's provision. His concealment was the method of God's provision. Look now, if you will, at verse 4 of 1 Kings 17. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. Elijah is about to experience God's unique catering service. Look at verses 5 and 6. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. Now these verses remind me that God's direction includes God's provision. God says, go to the brook, and I'm going to provide for you there. God never gives you a command in which he will not give you the means in which to fulfill that command. We often say God's work done in God's way he never lacks God's support. I remember when I was a student at Dallas Seminary and Dr. Walford was in his 50th year. My first year was his last year as the president of Dallas Theological Seminary. And he recounted a story that took place in 1924 when Lewis Sperry Chafer, the first president, was in dire straits and the seminary had almost capitulated. It had come to the point of bankruptcy and it was to foreclose at noon that day. And so several of the men met with Dr. Chafer and they began to pray. And in that meeting was Dr. Harry Ironside. And if you've ever read some of his sermons or heard them, there's a few audio recordings that are left. He was probably one of the greatest expositors in the first half of the 20th century. And he prayed in his characteristically refreshing way, Lord, you know what our needs are. You said in your word that you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Please sell some of those cattle and send us the money. And while they're praying, a Texas cattleman came into the office and this man wanted to see Dr. Chafer and she said, well, he's in a prayer meeting right now. He said, well, you know, I'm a cattleman and I've had two large loads of cattle in Fort Worth and I've been trying to make a business deal with the profit I just made on those two loads I sold last week and I can't seem to do anything with it and I just thought this morning God is compelling me to come and, and to bring the money to Dallas Seminary. Here's the check. And she timidly knocked on the door to interrupt that meeting and finally, Dr. Chafer answered the door and hand, she handed him the check and he immediately knew the name of this famous cattleman. He said, and by the way, it was for the exact amount they needed. And this man had absolutely no idea of the need, even the straits that they were in. And Dr. Chafer said, Harry, God just sold some of his cattle. <laughs> that was God's miraculous provision. And I believe that God is providing for this church. And he is giving us an impact here and around the world by his sovereign, omnipotent grace because we are obeying what we know. And here is Elijah. He obeys what he knows. And God brings him to this brook where he provides for his needs. There are few things God loves more than men and women who act in conformance to their faith in him. Such was the prophet Elijah, and God honored that obedience. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ELI-1. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude part one of our multi-part study of the prophet Elijah. Join us then as we search the scriptures.